You're listening to a Wheeler Centre podcast. What is it that makes a good story? What's the heart of a good story? How do you find a good story? How do you have a conversation with somebody that reveals the interesting human connection between the two of you? I think they're skills that are relevant to everyone, whether you're hosting 7.30 or chatting to your neighbour over a fence. In this episode, join Lee Sales and Lisa Miller, two of Australia's most accomplished and admired journalists, as they discuss the craft of journalism beyond the headlines. This episode was recorded on Boon Wurrung Country. The Wheeler Centre acknowledges their elders past and present. We pay respects to all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people and to the elders of the lands this podcast reaches. Hello everyone. Lee and I have known each other for a very long time. Some of you may have heard the story uh, previously, but we met properly at an event something like this. It was a, a farewell or a celebration for people in Brisbane. We were both at the ABC at the time. Lee had come up from Sydney and I was in Brisbane. And we can't remember who turned up first, but the point was that both of us turned up very early. (laughs) And we discovered that uh, that was not the only thing that we had in common, that we like punctuality and that even when we try to be late for something, uh, we end up always being early. You are making us sound so fun and interesting. (laughs) Lee, welcome. Thank you. It's quite a pleasure to be able to speak to you about storytellers. Uh, How many people did you talk to? Um, 32. 32, yes. I'm going to give you the answer (laughs) because I did immediately what you do. I learned this when we were correspondents in Washington. Do you remember this? That they called it when a book came out in Washington, D.C., and Lee and I were both the correspondents at the same time, that people would do the Washington read of a book. And what that meant was that they'd go to the acknowledgements to make sure they were in it. (laughs) So as soon as the book was published, I went to the acknowledgements. Oh, thank you to Lisa Miller. I mentioned first. What a privilege. And Annabelle Crabb, great, for being interviews number one and two. I read on. Thank you for being the lab rats on which I could test my audio and transcription software. (laughs) I truly can't tell you how shattered I was to know that my contribution to this book involved helping you with your audio. (laughs) But anyway, we'll move on. Oh, God. That's some... Well... She didn't tell me she was going to open with that, but that is bloody funny. But also um, what's funnier is that Lisa's written a book which is coming out next year um, about her television show Mustard Dogs that she anchors and she sent me – yeah, everyone loves it – she sent it to me to read and she said, um, just letting, and sorry, she hasn't sent the whole thing to me to read. She sent me something to read and she said, just letting you know that you're not in the acknowledgements. <laughs> she claimed I'd done nothing for her. So, yeah. In fact, Lee had done so little that on the, on the day... I, didn't, I wasn't even the lab rat for her audio no, software. <laughs> exactly. When I, I narrated the very first episode of the first series, I was so overwhelmed by the experience and the pressure of it and felt that it was beyond my capabilities and that they had chosen the wrong person that I rang Lee to say... Oh, I'm so upset. I think I've bitten off more than I can chew. And Lee said, why don't you pull out? <laughs> <laughs> That's right. And I've been there for her every step of the way ever since. No, seriously, actually, she's managed to write. I mean, I don't know how we've turned this into it's all about Lisa Miller because it's goddamn my night. But, um, no, I think uh, she's written this book in a, less than six months. And I actually, I, I, how you've done that and hosted a television show that requires you to get up at 3am five days a week. I honestly don't think anyone else could have done it. I mean, I can't vouch for the quality of the book, but, you know, (laughs) no, it'll it'll be wonderful. Well, let's talk about storytellers. Why did you want to write a book that 
delved into not only journalism and what we do in the media, but also painted it in a way that was a bit of a how-to for people who tell stories themselves. Anyone, all of you tell stories. Um, I think a few reasons. One is because people over my career, particularly in the past decade or so, I think people generally are very interested in the media and what goes on behind the scenes and people often ask me about things. So when I've had prominent interviews, people will come up and go, you know, what was Paul McCartney really like or what about this or what about that? And people want to know um, those kind of things. So that that was one. Um, two was just that most of what I feel I've learned in journalism has been through working with other people and just observing what other people do. You learn a huge amount about how to tell stories and how to communicate well with people by just watching other people who are good at it or people telling you what to do. And so there's no way to get that knowledge passed on unless somebody tells you. So that was also part of it. And also, I mean, I do want to pass knowledge on to younger generations because I think unlike our generation where when I was young, you'd be in a newsroom and you would hear people on the phone and the way that they would talk to people. Um, you would have your copy sub-edited by somebody else and so you'd learn about clear, crisp, um, accurate writing and so on. And that doesn't happen so much anymore, so I wanted to be able to pass that on. And then the final thing is probably what you're alluding to, which is a lot of the tools that people use in, their, in, in journalism or people who use who are professional communicators are the same kind of tools that anyone can really use to become a better communicator. So, for example, um, I remember once reading Helen Garner refer to her mother as somebody who didn't really know how to tell an anecdote very well. And she said, you know, my mother, um, she will tell an anecdote and the beginning will be a week, a month or years before its actual correct beginning. <laughs> and we've all dealt with people like that. And so just those kind of skills about what is it that makes a good story? What's the heart of a good story? How do you find a good story? How do you have a conversation with somebody that reveals the interesting human connection between the two of you? I think they're skills that are relevant to everyone, whether you're, you know, hosting 7.30 or chatting to your neighbour over a fence. Do you remember at the very beginning you gave me a couple of chapters that I passed on to my big sister, Wendy. Yes, I and, do. And Wendy it has just been a consumer of journalism over the years. And, and that's what we wanted to know was, is yeah. this interesting to anyone who's not a journalist? Yeah. And and we gave her Mark <laughs> <Thank> Burroughs <laughs> and Chris Reason's chapters. So right. Mark Burroughs from Channel 9, Chris Reason from Channel 7. And Wendy said she couldn't put it down because they revealed so many interesting stories and I think one of the things about the people you've spoken to is, geez, they tell a cracking yarn. Well, can I, can I talk to you a bit about Chris Reason from Channel 7? I don't know if any of you are familiar with him. He, he is the most extraordinary news reporter, I, I think just, you I, know. I think he is the most extraordinary news scripter. I think he the is. way he writes his stories are, oh, chef's kiss, beautiful. And he, he just, he's so enthusiastic about journalism and the craft of telling a, a story in, you know, a minute 30 or two minutes, basically. Anyway, Chris Reason's one of those people. When you, when Lisa and I now have studio-based jobs, but when, you know, before that, you're usually a field-based field reporter. And so Chris Reason's the kind of person, if you arrive at a story and Chris Reason's there, you think, oh, no, Rezo's here because I'm going to be owned on this story. Anyway, many years ago, uh, I was in Adelaide covering the return of the Australian David Hicks from, who was in Guantanamo Bay and being returned to a prison in Adelaide. And, and all the networks had their big reporters there and Chris Reason was there for Channel 7. And so the day one story was um, kind of, as big stories often do, they kind of tell themselves. It's, it's David Hicks comes into the prison and da-da-da-da. The day two story, the follow-up story, was much harder because he was now in the prison. There was no pictures of him. He wasn't talking. Nobody was talking. And the only thing we had all day was this um, guy from the South Australian Department of Corrective Services who did the most, one of the most boring press conferences of my career. And he stood there and he, I, I'm not exaggerating, he, his whole press conference was basically reading off a piece of paper going, uh, at A600, Mr Hicks awoke for the day. At A610, he received a bowl of wheat bix He requested milk. 
at 06.15, he was escorted to the shower block and it just went like this, horrendous. And so I left and thought, oh, this is just a really boring story. And I filed a kind of very boring day two sort of story. And I was meeting Chris Reason for a drink that night and I thought I'd better just whack on Channel 7 and see what Chris Reason's done. Now, Chris Reason did not have one additional piece of material beyond what I had. He had exactly the same material. And when I saw the start of his story, it began with the grainy archival footage from Guantanamo Bay in 2001 when the first prisoners arrived, the the long lens with the orange jumpsuits and everyone shackled together going across the tarmac. And Rizzo's story opened with, after years of the utmost secrecy, now we're getting every last detail. And then he had the dude... (laughs) <laughs> I was just like, oh, God. Um, and and it was su- sorry, it was yeah. such a lesson in for if you work in nonfiction or fact, you can only work with what's in front of you and you have to be committed and creative about that. And anyway, I've told that story often at ju- for journalism lectures and things like that. And when this book was launched a few weeks ago, Rizzo came to the book launch and he said, mate, I've got a present for you. And he pulled an envelope out of his bag and I opened it. And it was the original script from that story. <laughs> it was so sweet that he'd written a lovely message on. And I was telling our other friend, Michael Usher, who works at Channel 7, and he's like, oh, that is so bloody Reza. You should see his desk. He's kept every piece of paper from, you know. Uh, staying with Chris Reason just for a moment, because the other story, I mean, normally with news reporters, you start as a junior doing general news and you will often then go on to work for 7.30, present 7.30, the very few people who have, uh, aspire to become a foreign correspondent or work for Four Corners. Chris Reason and only a few other people in the industry have dedicated their lives to staying news reporters and they see that as such an art. And I think that came out again in the book, the story about him covering the boys in the cave. Oh, yeah. That was um, another example of... um, I mean, he's kind of extraordinary. So they were in Thailand covering the Thai cave rescue and everyone... Rizzo was making the point that well, when everyone goes this way, you go that way. And so everyone, the world's media is at this thing and they're all kept a long way back from the caves. There's military checkpoints and so on. And uh, finally, the word comes, they've got all the boys out. They've Every last one of them has been rescued. Amazing. So these thousands of media, everyone files, they do their last live crosses, they pack up. Rizzo and his camera operator are exhausted and Rizzo says to the cameraman, you know what, we're exhausted, everyone's exhausted. I bet you all the soldiers and everyone at the roadblocks are also exhausted. Let's see if we can finally get a look inside this cave where it's all been happening. And the cameraman, of course, wants to kill him. Um, But they drive, first roadblock, unmanned, second roadblock, soldier there, but head asleep on the desk. And they go and they get actually into the cave and they're able to get the, you know, first shots of inside this actual thing. Now, of the thousands of journeys that were there, only four actually took the time to go in and have a look at the cave. And, and I think that's what makes the difference between, you know, a, a kind of solid news reporter and a really exceptional one. The other person who is like that, and again, one of the few, few television journalists in Australia who has dedicated their career to the art of TV news reporting is Mark Burrows at Channel 9. And Burrows talks about, and actually, interestingly, these guys like Burrows and, and Rizzo and the late Peter Harvey, what, what they actually really enjoy is the challenge not of the big story because they've all done those a million times the war zones and the disasters and so forth the really really hard stories any journalist will tell you are the color stories or the stories that you get sent to every year the boxing day sales anzac day um christmas day at the church or whatever remembrance day remembrance day and so burrows was talking about in fact Strangely enough, both Chris and and Mark, who were quite competitive, both separately, without me raising it, raised Anzac Day. And one of the reasons they like it is because they they want to see, can I get a better story than my mate at Channel 9 and my mate at Channel 7? And so they're there every year. And what Mark said is, you cannot go and show up at this thing with the attitude of, oh, I do this every year. I know what it is. It's, you know, it's... And he kind of did this blasting, you know, on the blah, 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 blah. It's like, no... We 
don't do it like that. We're looking for those human moments. And they talked about, you know, watching your competitor and you say, oh, he just got that really great human element of that man with his granddaughter or, you know, whatever it is. And, and these guys, they, they're such masters at what they do because they care so much about the detail. You talk to people about live broadcasting, David Spears, Stan Grant. You talk to Nikki Sava, uh, Annabelle, of course, Carl Stefanovic, the EPs, the editors, Trent Dalton. You, you cross this very broad spectrum. What did they have in common, if anything? By far and away, like the first trade in common and then daylight, it's curiosity. Um, it's this instinct of, oh, that's weird or oh, that's interesting. I want to know more about that. And unlike most people that you just know, oh, that's interesting, they actually went um, and and they want to, they actually find out more. You did it today, actually. You're, you're the most probably curious, another word, of course, is sticky beak, that I know. Um, so we stopped at the Flinders sourdough oh. um, place today, which was so beautiful, and got a sausage roll, and we're sitting out the back. And we were talk- I said to Lisa, could you ever imagine having a sea change and running a bakery? She's like, yeah, I could see some appeal to it. And I said, well, it's hard hours. They have to get up super early, blah, 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 blah. Anyway, next thing, we're about to leave and she goes back in and I think, oh, she's getting one of those brownies or whatever. <laughs> no, she's in there quizzing the baker about what are the actual hours that he does. <laughs> and then she comes back out and goes, um, oh, this guy, he doesn't have to come in at 3am because he does sourdough. So it's not the same situation. It's not a yeast-based product. It's a sourdough kind of thing. So we got to the bottom of that, which reminds me of another time, speaking of Lisa Miller being a massive sticky beak, where... She came to. She was supposedly coming to visit me at my house in Sydney, and as previously explained, she's never late. Five o'clock passes. She doesn't arrive. It's quarter past five. I'm starting to get worried. Twenty past five. She rings. She's accidentally gone to my old house because she's forgotten that I've moved houses. Dorothy, who bought the house, has opened the door. She's recognised Lisa Miller. No, Lee doesn't live here anymore. Lisa goes in, has a cup of tea with Dorothy, <laughs> rings me to say I've run out of time. I'm not coming to your house. Now, that's the hallmark of a very solid journalist, that personality type. <laughs> yes. You'll notice that she, she worked the entire room before, <laughs> you know, just to check. So all of you, anyone that gave Lisa any information, I'll be hearing it in the car on the way home, <laughs> just letting you know. Um, well, I do think, though, curiosity, that as a journalist, if you're not wondering what's going on, uh, whether it's why there's the flashing light at the end of the street or why someone is making a decision or saying something and you're not trying to get to the bottom of that, then I do kind of feel like, well, you're probably in the wrong gig. Yeah, and I think I, I, I completely agree. And, and so often in my career I've noticed that the following of that instinct of, oh, that seems a bit weird, is where you find stories. Like I remember many years ago now, Tony Abbott came in for an interview when he was the um, opposition leader and it was about, he was, was in that era when he was highly critical of the Gillard government's carbon tax and BHP was announcing the closure of a particular um, mine and Tony was blaming it on the carbon tax. Now we got next to no notice at all that he was coming in for an interview and so little, in fact I think it was about an hour that myself and my producer, Justin Stevens, who's now the head of ABC News, and another guy called Andrew Dixon, kind of split whatever material we could get. And I remember we kind of ripped this BHP report in half and Dicko took half of it and I had the other half. And I remember Andrew Dixon, actually, funnily enough, he doesn't remember this, but I remember it so distinctly. He came in and said, I found this thing on page eight. It just seems completely at odds with what Tony's saying. It's, it explicitly says that the reasons for the closure are, you know, X, Y and Z, and there is no mention of it being related to the carbon tax. And so um, I said, oh, that's good. Okay, circled it and then sort of raced off, raced down to the studio and then Abbott came in. And as he was speaking, we, we were kind of talking about him blaming BHP and wh whatever he was saying, I just got this gut feeling that I can just tell, I don't think you've actually read the report. And so I ended up, I didn't just like kind of notice that. I actually went down that rabbit hole and said, can I ask, have you actually read this report? And he actually went, ah, oh, Lee, um, no. <laughs> <laughs> and, then, and then it became a gigantic story um, for days and days. But and you only knew that because you had read the report. I had. And that goes to the kind of research that you would do as a live interviewer. Yeah, because you, you can never be 
and should never be probably as big an expert in the field as the person who's coming in because they de dedicate their whole life to that. Whereas my, the nature of my job is I have to be shallow across a whole lot of different topics because on any one day I might have to know about nuclear power and then the next day I might have to know about, you know, Elton John. So the reality is on that day I knew like that much more than Tony just because I'd read the report and, and Tony hadn't. Um, and so you're always trying to go in there and be as prepared as you are. And you can't, it's not like an exam, you can't really cram you have to be you know it's say if you had to host the voice night referendum result you can't just prep the day before if you haven't read the newspaper and followed it every single day you can't you can't do it I know you get asked this question a, a lot but I want to ask it for this crowd do you miss 7 30 do you know what I don't because it was the right time to go um and so I it's actually just been a huge relief to me to not have to be doing something like this and having in the back of my head, am I going to go back to my phone and I'm going to have missed 15 calls because something has happened? And I think you only realise when you leave that how you've got this nagging anxiety and fear all the time because your life can be upended at any second by something and just also the pressure of having to do it and and be the front person all the time and, and the nature of that role is just because of how I viewed it, that you're often in situations of conflict because you're trying to hold people accountable on behalf of the person at home. And so it's not socially pleasant, <laughs> if you know what I mean. Like you wouldn't, if I was sitting here with someone tonight and I said this dessert's delicious and they said it's not, I wouldn't go, well, actually, I'd point out to you that like you just don't behave like that in reality. So the kind of like when Tony's... Tony's coming across that he hasn't read the report. In reality, you would never go, well, have you actually read this report? You, you would just go, oh, you'd note to yourself. Whereas on a show like that, you're constantly in that position. And so after doing it for a long period of time, um, it, was, it was draining. And so it's, only, it's been a relief to me to not do it. And funny, because even on big story days, people will say to me, oh, you must wish you were in there today. And I think, oh, God, actually, when I see a big news day, I just go, oh, thank God. I don't have to. <laughs> the Queen died and I've left. Thank God. <laughs> um, one of the other things that comes out in the book is the um, energy that so many people have to keep going. People like Kate McClymont, who's one of the best investigative reporters in Australia, and so dry with her wit. I just there are so many moments in this book where I just laughed out loud. She she actually tells one of my favourite stories in the book. The other one's Samantha Maiden. I'll tell you in a second. But Kate McClymont talks about we're talking about the following of your natural instinct and of curiosity and so forth. And McClymont tells this story about how she got cold called this day by this guy who was a parent at a very posh Sydney private school and he had a real bee in his bonnet about this other school dad. And he said, his name's Michael Williamson, you know him. And Kate's like, well, who? And he says he's the president of the Health Services Union and the president, the National Labor Party president. And uh, he was like, this guy union leaders are only supposed to be paid as much as their highest paid member. And he drives a Mercedes. He's got four kids at this school. His wife drives a top of the line Mercedes, even though she doesn't work. They've got a beach house. They fly first class overseas. But the thing that had really got this guy's goat was that this bloke constantly outbid him at the school trivia night. <laughs> and so he'd call, he was so wound up he'd rung Kate McClymont and McClymont thought she just sort of thought oh that's funny and then she thought yeah that is actually kind of weird so she went away and she did um a search a company search on any companies that Michael Williamson was the director of and she found he was the sort of director of this particular company then she went and had a look at the union's annual reports so this is all very basic level stuff not even a experienced investigative journal needs to know how to do this. She looked at the company's annual report. Oh, that's weird. This company's done a million dollars worth of consulting for the union. And then there was no, she went to the like third party declarations. There was no mention of this link. Then she did a few other more complicated searches. Long story short, Michael Williamson went to prison for five years. Um, so I bet that and, other and dad's very happy at the school trivia and night. And Kate is responsible for one of the best quotes on the back of the book, which is, I'm just an innately optimistic person. I think people might want you to stop what you're doing, but they don't actually want to kill you. Well, that's something I cling on to, she says. <laughs> the Sam Maiden story I was going to tell was um, about she broke the story that Scott Morrison was secretly on holidays in Hawaii when Australia had big bushfires happening. 
And so I was asking him, well, how did you find that out? And again, it was a simple example of just noticing something and being curious, but instead of just noticing it and being curious and filing it away, actually following it up. So she rang, she was just like, it's so weird. Like Michael McCormack, the, who was the acting, the, the uh, deputy prime minister, he, it's just McCormack every day is so strange. So she rang Morrison's office to say, what's going on? Where is he? Is he on holidays or something? And they really gave her the kind of brush off and, and kind of the tone of it was basically... I'll just you're you're such a weirdo. Nobody else cares. You're the about only this. one asking. You're the this. only what's one. What's your problem? Yeah, what's your problem? You know, you're the only weirdo even asking about it. And so <laughs> Sam's actual quote in the book is, and that gave me the shits. <laughs> and then she said, and some of my best stories come out of me getting the shits. And so she said, then I was just like, do I know anyone who works at airports? Do I know anyone who knows anyone who works at airports? And she just every person she could think of, every contact she's rung to try to find out, has anyone seen Scott Morrison at an airport? And she discovers, finally someone says, yep, I saw him getting on the flight to Hawaii. Uh, And so she ends up running the story that Morrison's gone to Hawaii. And she says it's kind of terrifying when you kind of, because the office won't confirm it. But she said almost them not saying, are you mad he's at home in Sydney was almost like a confirmation. And so she ran it and then... Yep, that was that. That that feeling of being terrified is also a common theme throughout of of people being scared about screwing up and and it's something we talked about when we Lee and I've just recently done a podcast together for the Newsreader TV series so it was a companion podcast for each episode as it dropped and it brought back a lot of memories for us as young reporters, when you're in the very junior jobs of just being always scared that you were one step away from bringing the whole news down, basically. Oh, yeah. Or just the fear of that. I mean, my first job was at Channel 9 in in Brisbane. I was talking to Erin before, actually, who had a very similar job. You Often your entry-level job is a very junior job, but strangely enough, often the junior people are tasked with quite a degree of responsibility because they end up being assigned jobs that are hard that nobody else really wants to do. Um, And so I would have to answer calls from members of the public. And I remember once getting in trouble because somebody had rung in with something that turned out to be a story. And I was, you know, you'd constantly be getting crazy people ringing. And so you'd kind of end up just wanting to get them off the phone. And then this story had come through that they'd rung us with. And then I didn't noted as a story, but then they rang someone else in the newsroom and it got through and so things like that. The other thing junior reporters are assigned to, which I know you had experience of, is um, a death knock, which is when you are assigned, you know, Bob Smith's wife just got eaten by a crocodile, you need to go and knock on the door of Bob Smith and, and see if he'll do an interview. And that is often a task that goes to one of the more junior people in the newsroom, even though a more senior person would be better equipped to do it. And it's because it's always such an unpleasant task that nobody really wants to do it. And you were a police reporter. Yeah. Yeah. So I worked for a, a tabloid newspaper in Brisbane before I went into TV. It was called The Daily Sun. And I was a police reporter at the age of 21 for nine months for this tabloid paper and it was because it was an afternoon paper I'd get in at four o'clock in the morning and would be sent out immediately to whatever job the police had told us had happened and I would wait and then have to go and knock on the door and I was naive and young and also such a goody two-shoes that I never thought you could say no to it. So I would do it. I would knock and I would say, look, I'm sorry. I know I'm the last person that you want to see. Um, I'm very sorry that you have lost your father, son, whatever the case might have been. Um, would you be prepared to give me a few words? And if they said no, then you would immediately leave. And if they said yes, which weirdly more often than not they would because people in fact wanted to talk at that point Um, but I was so young and inexperienced I don't know how I stumbled through those nine months but the stories were really traumatic Um, a couple of years ago was it just last March I was at a writers festival in Dolby in country Queensland um, after my book Daring to Fly available at the front door (laughs) I signed copies for Christmas Um, 
And I was there giving a um, keynote speech and this woman came up to me with a, um, an elderly gentleman They and she said, oh, look, I just wanted to say I've read your book and I think you did a great job. And then she paused and she said, you knocked on my door 31 years ago. And I knew exactly what she meant. That's all she needed to say to me. And I said to her, can I ask you... Um, why? And she said, my husband was out on a windsurfer. And as soon as she said that, I put my hand on her arm and I said, and another windsurfer pierced his heart. And you had a six-month-old baby and you lived in front of a flower farm. And she looked at me and started crying, and I started crying. Oh, because, I'm not crying now. No, well, because I mean when do your lives come back like that? And and I said, and we had a bit of a chat and I said to her, uh, do you mind me asking, because this is something I have carried for so many decades, did I do you more harm by turning up that day? And she said, no. She said, you spelt his name right mm. in the paper and I can't tell you how much that meant to our family. And we have now stayed in touch. And, in fact, I texted her tonight to say that I was coming and I said, I know, Mary Kim, you have told me I can always tell this story but I just want to check in with you again because I'm going to another group. And she said, of course you should tell it because who has that opportunity to come back and ask a question that you might have wanted to ask? Yeah. It's interesting the point you make too about sometimes um, – I think not all the time, but maybe half the time, people actually do want to speak when something has happened to them, maybe not like the day after, but often people, and I would always ask people in this circumstance, why do you want to speak? Because what you want to do as the interviewer is to assist them to tell their story in a way that doesn't further add to their trauma. And so people have lots of different reasons for speaking. Sometimes they want the government to make changes about something. Sometimes they want to ensure that the death of their loved one hasn't been in vain. Sometimes they just want people to not remember their mum as the first person who died in a nursing home of COVID. They want people to see them as a fuller person than that. And so if they tell you what it is they hope to get out of it, then that allows you to steer the conversation in a way that they find it helpful. And so sometimes people will find that process cathartic. I noticed when I wrote my book, earlier book, Any Ordinary Day, the people that I interviewed in that, all of whom had had something terrible happen to them, often they felt like people hadn't wanted to listen to them because it's too confronting for people to actually hear them. And so what a point that um, one of the people in that book made, what made Walter Mickack, who lost his whole family in Port Arthur, he lost friends because he said like really good friends just avoided, he never spoke to them ever again because they didn't know what to say to him and they feared making it worse. And his Walter's point was geez, my wife and my six-year-old and my four-year-old just got killed at point-blank range. What do you think you could say that would make that worse? Like, you can't make it worse. What makes it worse is that you're compounding loss with further loss, that then you're losing friends. The other thing about that book that I feel like I learned something from in the way that Lee approached it, Any Ordinary Day, and it goes to some of the conversations you have here with people in Storytellers, is that you gave everyone the copy to look at. Yeah. Which, which is, is something we've been taught yeah. never to do over the years. In journalism um, courses, you're taught that you never let the person see the finished product because the the, and this is true, that people pull their punches, you know, when they see something written down like, oh, I don't want to quite say that. Um, but in, and I've mostly stuck to that in my career, you certainly never tell people the questions you're going to ask or anything of that ilk. But um, in any ordinary day, I felt that they had been through so much, those people, and I, I knew because of my profile that what I wrote about their story would be the record of their story, and I didn't want to add even one millimetre of additional grief or trauma to what had happened. And as Lisa said, things like the correct spelling of a person's name is actually profoundly important to people. And so I kind of trusted that, oh, I'm going to let them see it and I hope they're going to be okay. And only one person requested a, a change, and the change was – it was actually a, a thing that I really – it was a great anecdote, but she felt concerned that it would perhaps 
um, upset somebody and I felt that it was a reasonable concern and so I took it out. Um, and then with this book, I let everyone read. So how I did this book was I recorded about an hour-long conversation with every person. and After then... she'd practised on me. <laughs> and then... That about an hour of conversation comes in at about 10, 12,000 words and then I cut it back to about 3,000 words. And so I gave everyone their chapter to read to say, are you happy, is this a fair representation of the conversation and, and so forth and everyone was happy with it. Um, Richard Feidler, I mean oh, yeah. I'm just opening at various parts because it is all so great. We love Richard Feidler on conversations, although because here in Victoria they have their own oh, yeah, of course. Yeah, yeah. version, but the podcast is, um, it, of course, is the most popular ABC podcast hands down, um, challenged, of course, by our podcast, <laughs> The Newsreader. Um, but his approach, he has to fill an hour talking to someone. So you've got people here who need to get a 15-second quote to Richard Feidler, who has to do an hour. Was there similarities about the way they approach things or what struck you or what did you learn from what they told you? Still still the curiosity. I mean, the, the Richard Feidler's incredible skill is he is a very erudite, well-read, knowledgeable man, but you never feel when you're listening to him interview somebody that he's making it about himself. And I think that's one of the biggest... Um, you know, problems with many interviewers is that people make it about themselves all the time, that they, they want to show their knowledge like, um, well, um, you know, Lisa, thanks for joining us. You've, you've been a foreign correspondent, a breakfast news host. Now you've written this wonderful book, Daring to Fly. What's next for you? It's like, well, why do I need to show that I know all of that about you? And so Richard's great skill is in having the knowledge but just using it to help the other person tell their story and that's why he's able to make I think such interesting conversations he's also somebody with a great deal of natural curiosity but I guess the difference with say how Richard interviews and how I would interview for 7 30 is just the time if you've got an hour with someone you can really let them unfold their story whereas if you've got seven or eight minutes you've got to kind of cut to the chase so it's just it's just a different art form and, and you know, sometimes people say who work in long-form television, like who make documentaries, they look down on, like, television news. I mean, I know even at the ABC, you'd sometimes feel like the people at Four Corners thought, look down on you if you're a news reporter. And so just, you know, Four Corners, 45 minutes, a TV news story, 1 minute 40. So, one, you know, big difference. Big difference, but a very good 1 minute 40 news story, if it captures the heart of the thing, it can still elicit the same emotional response in you as a viewer and actually I think it's an extraordinary art form to be able to condense something into as few words as possible. The other interview that I love in here is with the editors, the the tape editors, and because they often don't get recognised. And you spent some time talking to Fred Shaw. Yeah, is not a name that any of you would have heard, but produced so much of the the incredible uh, stories that you saw on Seven Thirty while Lee was there. Yeah. So the people, if you work in any kind of well print as well because you're relying on photographs sometimes to tell your story but particularly in film and television the what you're relying on with the people who both capture the material in the field and then edit it to your script they add so much to it and Fred Shaw was one of those people where you'd give him the script and the pictures and you'd say here's what I think you should do and then you'd come back an hour later and he would have what was in your head would be so – what Fred would have put down would be so much better, like just an extraordinary visual intelligence. Another person in the book who has that skill was a couple, but um, Louis Eriglou, my friend who's the camera operator at Four Corners, who Lisa worked with in Washington, he truly one of the best camera operators, not just in Australia, in the world. He is a couple of White House Press Photographer Awards, amazing camera operator. Um, he – I love working with him because he's a guy who's kind of – um, a I would call him street smart, not book smart. And so he's all about visual intelligence and I'm all about word intelligence. And so he just looks at the world kind of differently to uh, than I do, but there's a kind of – because you understand what the story's about, I'm trying to tell it in my way and he's trying to tell it in his way. And when you work with people where there's – an understanding and a meeting of minds, you end up making a great product. And he just, like we were walking one day, there's this walk in Sydney called the Bay Run. We were walking along it recently and we were talking about lighting and, and lighting's a really hard art. And um, 
we were, Louis was talking about how much it affects mood and stuff. And we're walking along. I hadn't even clocked this at all. And he went like this salesy. And he just grabbed him by the shoulders and he went, happy trees. And then he spun me around and there was the same kind of trees, but behind us that we just walked past and he went, sad trees. And what the difference was, was the trees we were walking towards had the sun kind of, where the sun was in the sky, it was shining on the trees. And so they were kind of well lit and they looked summery and, and nice. And then the trees behind us were backlit with the sun coming through them. So from our view, they looked kind of dark and there was much more shadows. And so it just blew my mind. Like, oh my God, he's walking through the world just going, happy trees, sad trees. And I'm thinking of what to say next. (laughs) But he would like, so in the field, Louis would say things to you like, um, so you might be at a press conference. I remember this occasion with George W. Bush and John Howard. And he would go, Mate, you know, I shot this, I shot this, I shot that. Um, I've got what's called a pull focus, which is where there's one element in the frame that's in focus and then there's something else and then the camera changes focus and so you're seeing one thing and then it shifts to a different thing. So he said, I've done a pull focus, it starts on the Australian flag and it finishes on the American flag, but I've done it back the other way as well. So if you want to start the sentence by talking about America, you can end by talking about Australia, but if you want to start the sentence talking about Australia, you can end by talking about America. I mean, that's an unbelievable level of thinking about giving the reporter options for how they tell the story and the really brilliant photographers and editors they just give you so many options to work with mm. and the, they're often unthanked to be honest and I do recall when you made a special note of thanking Fred for his work oh yeah Fred <laughs> So Fred Shaw, Fred Shaw, the editor we've just been talking about. So for the first time ever, he is about to be thanked <laughs> on live television. His family are watching. They're so excited. Fred Shaw. <laughs> so if you if you ever see a story and at the end of that, they go, and that story was shot by Louis Eraglou or that story was edited by Fred Shaw, that means that the person, the behind-the-scenes person has gone so far above and beyond that you feel like you cannot allow it to go to air without acknowledging them. And so this particular story, um, I said, you know, blah, 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 so and so reported, and that story was edited by Fred Shaw. Fred texted me later that night a shot of the screen captioning and the captioning had written under it and that story was edited by a French whore. (laughs) (laughs) We laughed for days. Yes, he did. He said that he laughed two years' worth of pain of working at 7.30. We, I don't know, I called him Frenchy ever since. We just, (laughs) we laughed so hard. Yeah, there are so many delightful stories in here of just people finding the humour in what we do, even (laughs) though there are some tough things. But there was Trent Dalton. Oh my God, let's talk about Trent Dalton and that basement. one, One of the things that was a challenge obviously if you're editing people from 10,000 words to 3,000 one of the challenges in editing which which is also a unique skill is to protect people's voices so not everyone sounds the same so they get edited to sound the same and one of the things I feel proudest of in this book is that I feel like everyone feels really different and true to their own actual voice and so interestingly as well people speak kind of like the kind of journalism they do. So when you read Chris Reason and Mark Burroughs, they're really punchy and to the point because they're used to a minute 30. And when you read Pamela Williams, who's an extraordinary investigative journalist at the Financial Review, she's retired now, but she does a lot of forensic reporting. And so she goes through in great detail how she constructs her narratives. And then Trent Dalton and Benjamin Law, who are great raconteurs, their chapters are full of rollicking anecdotes and, and entertaining stuff. But Trent talks about going to see um, – he did a story with Alex Malat, who's the brother of Ivan Malat, and the story was about what is it like to be the brother of Australia's most notorious serial killer. And so he just tells this hilarious yarn about having to go – it's in the Sunshine Coast hinterland, and he said it was one of those afternoons where it feels like the apocalypse has happened and you're the only person in the world. There's no one in the streets. You're in deep, deep suburbia. And he goes into this house and Alex Malat's there and he – and he walks in and he sees the mantelpiece is full of shots of Alex and Ivan together. And and then he kind of has this realisation like, yeah, of, why? of course, it's his brother. He loves his brother. Of course he loves his brother. And then Alex Malat's regaling him with this thing about their upbringing and how their father raised them to believe that killing an animal and killing a human are the same thing. And so Trent says he just can't not say anything and he's like, mate, they're just not. Like it's just... <laughs> 
they're just not. And then he says he keeps noticing things like there's a knife on the kitchen bench and stuff. And he's like, stop thinking like this. Like, it's why are you doing this? Anyway, eventually Alex Malat says to him, after they've had this kind of testy exchange about how killing an animal and killing a human are not the same thing, Alex goes, come down under the house. <laughs> and Trent, Trent's sharing the story because he's saying... When you're telling a story, you have to do things because you have to do them for the reader. So when Renee Zellweger says, let's have a shot of tequila, sorry, you've got to take the shot of tequila. When someone, when Alex Malat wants you to come down under the house, you have to go down under the house with Alex Malat. What happened though? So he gets down there and he says it's just full of like, I mean, we all know what, I mean, I assume under the house in Victoria is like under the house in Queensland. It's just like dusty and full of industrial looking equipment basically and so um he goes in and it's just machinery and stuff and dirt and dust and all of the rest of it stooping to not hit your head and he alex has got this machine and he starts cranking it and this thing falls out and it's a bullet making machine and he gives trent a bullet as the souvenir of his visit to come and visit him But what a cracking feature story he got out of it. <laughs> amazing, yeah. Yeah. Amazing. It's some um, it it is that point in a lot of what we do that you have you get to that um place where you have to make the decision whether you are gonna go into the basement or go under the house. Just this last week I was filming in Outback Queensland a back road story and one of the things I had to do was get on a very small wooden platform on an elevator that took me 45 feet underground that was being operated by an amateur. And, <laughs> and, and can I just, sorry, can yeah. I interrupt? Even though I wasn't there, I'll just take the story over. Um, the, the sound man had to go down first and he balked at about 10 metres in. He said, no, get me out, get me out, get me out. So the soundie has had to come back out and then they start to put, well, you should tell your own story. <laughs> 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 so they start putting – I get on to do it and they operate it the wrong way and they start sending me up into the top of the thing. So by now I am absolutely – excuse the language, but I am shitting myself. But I think this is going to be great television. So when I'm relaying this to Lee, she said, did you take a sedative? <laughs> Did you have some Valium or something? No, I said no. And she said, I cannot believe it. Anyway, so I got back on the platform and then went down and was deposited then in an underground mine that these two people were um, looking for sapphires. And so then she showed a, me the video last night yeah. of the whole thing and I was just like, oh, that's just... Yeah. But, you know, it's the Trent Dalton. If you get offered the tequila, you do it. I mean, Absolutely. it's, you know... Yeah. And look, not much has happened over the years where I've got myself into trouble that way. Do you know one of the interesting conversations that we had in the making of the Newsreader podcast? So we've interviewed lots of the behind the scenes people and some of the actors and Anna Torv, who plays the lead female Newsreader, came in for an interview. And we were talking about her prep for doing the role. And she said, um, you know, I just think, wow, it must be a certain personality type that can do this kind of stuff, you know. And I said, well, or the kind of personality type like Lisa and I that can kind of force themselves to do mm. this stuff. And then Anna said, but you can still even force yourself to do it. Like some people can't do it at all. And so that actually, it was a really interesting insight, I thought, because I'd never thought about it like that. I'd always felt like, oh, I feel like I'm not a natural kind of just gung-ho that I've had to steal myself to do stuff. And then I thought, oh, actually, yeah, she's right. The fact that I could kind of steal myself to but do it. But this is where – so, Salzy and I are um, same but very different in that we both worked together in the Washington Bureau in the early 2000s and I can remember you saying, I want to go to bed at night and know that I'm going to bed in my own home and I know where I'm going to be tomorrow, whereas I loved the adrenaline yeah. of never knowing where I was going to be going to bed that night because you could wake up and you could be sent anywhere around the globe and our former news director Kate Tawney is here and Kate sent me over to London after doing Washington Time and I ended up spending 12 years overseas and to the very day I finished, even though a lot of it was 
really challenging and it I still was driven by that adrenaline and the excitement of never knowing what was going to happen next. Do you think, has that worn off now? Like now do you feel like, oh, if my phone rang right now and they went, you're on a plane to blah, blah, blah would you be happy yeah, about no, that? I or? think it's worn off now. <laughs> <laughs> but for some people it doesn't. I mean, we have colleagues who still do thrive on that. For me, I felt like I hit an age where it, it just became too hard and too tiring the thought of having to just never know where you were going to be. But it was very exciting as a younger person. Salzi, I had a great um, opening joke to start with, but I failed to get an ending. I don't don't know how to end this now. Oh, okay. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Like I I just thought I really – I just threw all my great material at the beginning. (laughs) I had you all laughing in the aisles. And then I realised, wow, I'm no good at finales. Well, should I, I mean... What would you like to say well, to wrap it up? I could suggest Are you good like a, at a wrap-up? I could suggest a closing question if, okay. if it's not too sure. much of a lease one. Yeah, yeah. Um, I would probably say, you know, well, if given that presumably everyone in this room is not a journalist, what would be the one thing they could take away from all of this okay, stuff that so we've... just hold that thought. Lee, given that everyone <laughs> in this room is not a journalist, mostly, there are a couple here, what, what would they take away from reading this book? I think, wow, you've really shocked me with that, Lisa. Um, just give me a minute to think about it. Um, I think maybe just if you actually, I think, want to understand another person's life experience or story... You have to go into it with an attitude of complete open-mindedness and not judgment. Like you have to honestly think like one of the I think one of the most interesting things for me in life is talking to people who think differently about things to me because I find that interesting. Like it's boring. If you talk to people all the time that just agree with you, it's boring. But I think we've kind of in some ways lost the art of communicating with people that we don't share the same views with or the same life experience with. And so I think that one of the richest and most interesting things you can have in life is just hearing about other people's life experience. So when you went up to Emerald and, and out into the gem fields and so forth in Queensland and when you were regaling me with that last night and showing me the videos and stuff, I mean, that was super interesting. And that woman that you were playing pool with, like, that's not pe- – they're not no, people – I beat her at pool. I wasn't just <laughs> It's like I'd only been in town 10 minutes and I was already leading the pool comp. (laughs) And so you're telling me about this person. I'm like, well, what's she doing out there? And so I think that that is the key to having an interesting life. But I feel like a lot of the times people are like, oh, well, I just write that person off because they don't share my views, they don't share my politics or, you know, whatever it is. Um, And I think that for having a full and interesting life, you have to kind of try to set aside your own judgment. And I think this is a thing for journalists as well, that I really hate the trend towards journalism that I think is driven more by ideology instead of curiosity. I like just journalism that's kind of open-minded, that's like, wow, what's going on here? And what do these people think about this? And that allows me as a consumer to make my own mind up what I think about it. And th- And these are things I just think you can apply, you know, in your everyday life. Not that you'd know it from how I've just gone on, but also that being concise is another good, you know, like just knowing when to stop speaking. (laughs) Stuff like that. Thanks for everything that you have done in journalism and for this book, Lee. It honestly is such a fascinating read. And thank you very much for coming out. Thank you very much. Thank you very much. And thank you, Lee. Thank you. You've been listening to Lisa Miller in conversation with Lee Sales. It was recorded on Friday the 6th of October 2023 at Montalto. Presented in partnership with Montalto as part of Spring Fling. A special thanks to official bookseller Antipodes Bookshop and Gallery. The Wheeler Centre podcast is produced on the lands of the Wurundjeri Woiwurrung people of the Kulin Nation. You can listen to more podcasts or explore videos, news and our full calendar of events at wheelercentre.com.